Mark chapter 7 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 24 through 30 this morning. When Jess and I first got married, uh, we lived in this historic area in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and we saw around us, most of the people that lived around us were pretty artistic people. We had really art, like eccentric sort of artists, and the lady that was right across the street from us was a painter, and we built a relationship with her. She actually owned the house that we lived uh, in across the street, and we, we, it was a, her art studio. We rented the back of it. It was like a 500-square-foot apartment. We could vacuum it with like using one plug, and, and the outlet was pretty amazing. You didn't have to unplug your, your vacuum to, to vacuum the whole house, and so we built this relationship with this lady. I hope to share the gospel with her. And she said, and I really want you, I really want, Jess, I want your husband, Ben, to meet my husband. And I, y'all should come over so you can meet him. And so I, I began to say, okay, this is, this is exciting. I get to meet this guy and hope to build a relationship with him. We walk in the door, front door, and then right off to the right-hand side, there's his office. And uh, he comes out of his office and tries to greet us. And we can see his office. And it's it's got books everywhere, like ceiling to floor books, like all the way around. And Jess said, man, that is, a, that is an incredible office, beautiful. I love how the way you've done your, your books and your library. And, and he, she says, what do you study? He says, well, all of the books that I have are on chess. And you're like, what? Chess? He's like, yeah, I have 1,500 books on chess. And 1,500 books, floor to ceiling, on chess. And I didn't even know that there were 1,500 books on chess until then. And he's like, yeah, I love the game of chess. And then to which my wife then follows up and says, Jess says, Ben plays chess. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like my grandfather taught me in the little board that folds out, the board game chess, right? That's what we're talking about. And she said, y'all should play sometime. I'm like, oh, okay. Now we're, just, now we're definitely, he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Come over tomorrow night, and we'll play. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And so, like, I'm going to get destroyed, and I'm going to be embarrassed. And sure enough, first, like, five moves, this guy destroyed, like, just wipes the table. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to start teaching you <laughs> how to play chess. And so he then starts giving me all these different books. We then stop playing on the fold-out board that I have that my grandfather gave me, and we start playing on his like tournament championship heavy things with the with the you know clock beside it that you press, and he starts telling me like here's how you write down your moves so you don't make the same mistakes, and he starts to teach me how to play chess. And so what I begin to realize that in order for me to understand this person, I have to be passionate of what he's passionate about. Like, to me, chess is a board game. To him, it's like a lifestyle. And so if I want to get into his world, I have to be passionate about the thing that he's passionate about, and that's chess. And so as I got better. Eventually, I ended up beating him once. I think he made a big, big mistake, and, or maybe he just felt sorry for me. Anyway, I beat him once, and, and we built this relationship, and I began to share the gospel with him. And I, so I tell you that story because if that's the relationship with, with us, so the way that we connect with people is we often connect and say, I want to share in something that you're passionate about. And so what does it mean to have a relationship with God that way? What does it mean to be passionate about what God is passionate about? Now, Scripture tells us there's a couple ways that you can understand the real heart of God. First of all, you have to become a believer in Jesus Christ. You have to know that your sins are forgiven when Jesus Christ died on the cross and that he rose from the grave and that he conquered the penalty that we all deserve of Satan, sin, and death, and that if we 
surrender our life to him, and we put our faith in him, he, he saves us and redeems us, he calls us his children, he calls us his sons, he calls us his daughters. That's what it means to, to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to invite you to become a believer in Christ if you really under, want to understand who God is and the heart of God. So that's one way, but, but after you become a believer, you also need the word of God. You also need to understand who he is and his character and how he works and how he operates and how he loves us and how he invites us to obey him and live for him and abide in him and all these wonderful things. And so those are the things that we see. And in order to understand the heart of God, we have to become believers in Jesus Christ. And we also have to understand the word of God. But, but also, if we're reading scripture, what is it that we learn about the heart of God? And what is it that he invites us into if we understand the heart of God? Of God. And what I want to pose to you this morning is if you want to understand the heart of God, you have to understand his mission. And you have to understand the scope of his mission, and the depth of his mission, and the width of his mission, how far his mission wants to go. And so, what you see in, in Mark's gospel is Jesus is sharing about the kingdom of God. And what you're, what you're starting to see slowly as the gospel continues. Um, you're starting to see that his mission is not just for the Jews, but it's actually for the world. That Jesus' mission would go beyond anything that the Jews would have imagined. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to come. They thought that the Messiah coming would overthrow, means that they would overthrow Rome and they would become the elite nation, that all other nations would look at them as the greatest nation. And so that's what they were hoping to see in the Messiah. And what you begin to see is that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, for the world. And so in order for us to understand the heart of God, we have to understand that his heart is for the world. That being a part of the kingdom of God is this massive thing that he calls us to, and we have to grasp the scope of what that means, and that's my hope this morning. In the text, we're going to see Jesus, as he's gone village to village preaching the good news, we're going to see his mission start to shift away from the crowds of people into more regions that were unreached. And so that's what we'll see in Mark chapter 7. We'll look at verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And now the woman was a Gentile. A Syrophoenician, a word you use, use every single day, I'm sure, by birth. And she begged him and to cast him out of, uh, to cast the demon out of her. Now, reading this, it would seem that Jesus is doing the same thing that we've seen him do already in Mark. A person comes to Jesus with an ailment and they want Jesus to heal them, Jesus give them compassion. But here it's, it's going to be a little bit different, and, and it's actually a little bit controversial what Jesus does here. First of all, it's important to know where this woman comes from. And this is why Mark makes it clear that she comes from the area of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre is, or Sidon, Tyre is one of Israel's most bitter enemies. And historically, Israel did not as- associate with their enemies, especially give them compassion. 
Secondly, and this is the other reason why it's controversial, we're, we're told this lady is a Syrophoenician. And I know this sounds strange. It sounds like an Avenger name or a supervillain. What's a Syrophoenician? But it basically means that she's a native of that area. She's a native of Tyree, which means that she would have been uh, one of Israel's bitter enemies. Uh, Matthew's gospel calls this woman a Canaanite woman, which means it's another way to describe that she's a non-Jewish pagan in another region. And so Mark is trying to show you, and the reason why he uses this, these terms to describe this woman, he's trying to show you how different she is, how much on the outside of the Jewish nation, of the Israelites, that she would be. And here Jesus makes this interaction so controversial because based on Jewish tradition, a Jew would never show this level of compassion that we're about to see to a Gentile. Furthermore, a Jew would not be shown going into the home of a Gentile, especially an enemy. And lastly, we see him talking to and interacting this way with a woman in which a Jewish rabbi would never interact with a woman this way and definitely not enter her home. So all of these different things are, are, all these things are very different in the way that Jesus has been interacting so far in Mark's gospel. Jesus is showing this compassion, and he's showing this because he's showing how his mission would now expand to the Gentiles. And the woman is, is asking Jesus this important question. Her daughter's possessed by a demon, and she's pleading. She's begging. Uh, Matthew's gospel says that she's crying to Jesus. Perhaps she's heard of the coming Messiah before. She's heard of this Jewish, the God that the Jews worship, Yahweh. They've, she's heard of, uh, in fact, Matthew's gospel says that when she comes to Jesus crying, that she calls Jesus the son of David. So she's heard, the, I've heard of this King David, and I've heard this, this person that's coming from this King, this Messiah that would come and be this, be this king over Israel, and now I've heard that he can do these miracles and perform these different things. And, and in fact, the, the lady calls Jesus something very interesting here. She actually calls Jesus Lord. She hasn't called anyone Lord. Uh, no, one, no one in Mark's gospel calls Jesus Lord but this woman. So she sees something different about Jesus. And perhaps her own God, the, the pagan God that she worships, hasn't worked out for her, hasn't come through for her. So she's wondering about the God of the Jews. What is so different about their God? So she comes to Jesus. She's, she's crying and she's begging, would you please, would you please heal my daughter? Now Jesus gives this response, and it, I'll be honest, it's, it's strange. Look at verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Thank you, Jesus. That's what I was hoping to hear. This really strange analogy about children eating at a table and then giving their crumbs to dogs. Now, what, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, he's using an analogy. He's saying that, he's using this analogy saying that the children are like the Israelites. The bread is like his, his mission, his ministry, his word. And, and then you have the crumbs, and who, who, who is eating the crumbs? He says the dogs. Who are the dogs? The Gentiles. So it seems like this is an insult. Well, we'll let you have some of the crumbs. Thanks, thanks, Gentile. We'll let you eat from the, you know, eat the leftovers from the table. 
what is really not being disrespectful. Jesus is not trying to be condescending or rude. He's actually kind of calling out some of the language that was so familiar to them about how the Jews described them. The Jews would call them dogs, saying that they're sort of like uh, scavengers. Uh, in those days, dogs were like possums. They sort of just lived on the street and they ate trash and they weren't like household pets like they are now. Uh, we get crazy with dogs. Like we call them like members of our family and we take pictures of them. We, we, wear, we put them in clothing and we have strollers for them and high chairs for them. I actually saw these products recently. This is uh, dog um, ice cream and this is uh, maple bacon flavored for dogs. So you can give dogs ice cream now. I didn't know that. This is actually dog beer. You can give dogs beer now. And, and, and it says non-alcoholic, just so you know, in case you were worried. But, um, but this is a beefy brown ale for dogs. And so, like, this is what we do with our animals now. We, we, we make them part of our family. They're like, okay, we're going to, okay, they're, they're, you know, they're just like our kids. Or how many times you meet people and you, you've got little ones and they don't have little ones yet. And so you're like, man, we were up all night with our, with our baby. Yeah, I was up all night with my dog. And they start to try to compare. You know, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you just... But that's what people do in, in our society. But then, in those days, dogs were like scavengers. They lived on the streets. And the Jews would call the Gentiles that because they were saying they just roam around and they worship different gods. They're not faithful to any, any particular god, and they just do whatever they want. That's the Jews' mindset of a Gentile. And so Jesus is using these words saying, hey, I'm allowing what you, what you understand dogs to be, I'm allowing them to eat. And later he's going to say, they're actually going to eat at the table just like everyone else. Now the language that Jesus is using, this analogy, he's saying what, what we see in Scripture, that the, the gospel would go to the Jews first and then to the world. And so Romans 1, Paul says it this way, one sixteen. he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, so power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and and also to the Greek. So he's saying, okay, the gospel is going to go to the Jews first, and then it was going to go to the Greeks. And so Jesus is using this analogy because he's sort of testing how much this woman really knows about him. And so what we're going to see is this woman, actually, she kind of gets it. She kind of knows what this compassionate Lord would offer her. Look at verse 28. She said and answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs... Under the table, eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed, and the demon gone. Now, why did Jesus show this woman compassion? He says, For this statement. What statement? Was the statement that she she gets it. She understands. That God's mercy and compassion isn't just for the Jews. It's for outsiders like her and her daughter as well. And he says, for this statement, go on your way, the demon has left your daughter. And so, for, for instance, this woman's faith to believe that the kingdom of God is big enough to stretch beyond the Jews is what saved her. And again, she, this is the only time someone has called Jesus Lord in the Gospel of Mark. She calls Jesus Lord. She knows that he is different and his plan is not just for these people, these ethnic people. 
And so this is good news for this woman. And it's good news for us as well. The fact that she gets this truth is the reason why we are sitting here today. That we are recipients of this promise that Jesus is showing this woman in his compassion. That we are eating the crumbs from the grace of God that we've all benefited from. And now he actually says, I'm not going to just give you crumbs. I'm going to call you my son and my daughter. I'm going to let you sit at my table. And you're going to eat just like everyone else. And there's no dividing wall whatsoever. No longer will your race divide you. No longer with your with how much money you make divide you. No matter uh, divide you. No matter how much what, what family you come from divide you. You're all invited at the table, and so this woman is understanding just a taste of that. And Jesus says, "For that reason, I'm going to heal your daughter." She knew that she didn't belong in the story, but God's compassion could reach her. Now, this woman's faith is. It's kind of staggering, if you understand the context. But throughout the entire Bible, there's this unfortunate tension between Jews and Gentiles, even from this point. You even see it with the disciples. They're like, Jesus, are you sure you want us to go to the Samaritans? That doesn't make sense. They're not like us. And then even like after Jesus dies on the cross and resurrects from the grave, he's with his disciples 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. He says, hey, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to go to all these different places. And they're like, oh, are you sure about that? That's, that's not part of what we thought you would do. And so he's constantly pushing this issue and this tension. It's for the world. The gospel, the kingdom of God is for the world. And so it's, it's, it's blowing their minds, and it's, and it's actually kind of confusing. In fact, even after Jesus resurrects from the grave, and Pentecost happens, and Acts, and the Holy Spirit falls upon all these people, and they become believers, even after that, even after all the things that Peter saw, Peter himself still struggled to treat, to treat the Gentiles differently. He's still trying to teach them like they should be more Jewish in the way that they live. Until Paul, we see it in Galatians, confronts him to his face. And so there's this tension over and over again between the Jews and the Gentiles. Why? It's because they don't understand the plan of God. They don't understand the grace of God and how far God's grace extends. And this even happened in a church that Paul planted in Ephesus. Paul is this church planter who's saved by Jesus Christ. He begins to plant different churches, and in Ephesus, this is the largest church, one of the largest churches in the Bible, explodes in growth. And in the church, you have a problem, and the problem is Jews and Gentiles. They don't get along. The Jews are coming in with arrogance, thinking, we're the special people of God. We should get special privileges. We should get to sit on the front row. We should get to have the first dibs on the communion wine. We should do all these different things. They're, they're thinking, we're the special people of God. And the Gentiles, they should sit in the back, and they should get treated differently. And then the Gentiles, they got issues too. They're angry at the Jews. They're holding grudges. They're, they're frustrated, and they're mad. They say, no, y'all been sitting in the front. We should sit on the front. There's this constant battle between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so what Paul does is he begins to write to the Jews and the Gentiles, and this is where the book of Ephesians comes from. To deal with this tension, y'all don't understand how limitless my grace is, how magnificent my grace is, and how far it extends. And so what does he do? He writes Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. It's all about how believers 
are not special because of where we came from, not special because of our ethnicity or our family heritage. We're special because we're chosen by God. He calls us sons and he calls us daughters. That's what makes us distinct from the rest of the world. This is where we get language like, hey, you're dead in your sins, meaning you you could do nothing on your own to obtain this favor with God. God just saved you and he, he breathed life into you. He gave you life. You were dead and now you're alive in Christ. So this is why we get all this language over and over in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. And so everyone in this room, I, I guarantee you, if I can go through, I bet you have a coffee mug or a bumper sticker or a Bible cover or a bookmark with verses from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. How we're chosen by God, how he's given us this magnificent grace, we're, we're, we're God's workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus, all these awesome, incredible, powerful verses. And then, then you don't know what, like often what happens is we don't know what happens after Ephesians chapter 2. Like we're like, oh, and then there's a 3. Well, I know chapter 5 is like the marriage one, right? And then chapter 4 is like something about like spiritual gifts. Chapter 3 is like, I don't... I don't know anything like that I could quote from chapter 3. Why is that? Like, chapter 3 is like the redheaded stepchild of Ephesians. And I know about redheaded stepchilds. I am one, okay? Like, it's the forgotten part. But, but let me tell you, as powerful as chapter 1 and chapter 2 are in Ephesians, and I wish I had time to unpack that, I want to show you that chapter 3 is the glue that holds it all together. Because in chapter 3, if you want to say, how do, we, how do Jews and Gentiles get along? How is it this woman's statement to Jesus is so powerful that, that, that we can even eat the crumbs from the table that were originally to be, to be for the Jews to hear and understand the gospel? How is it that this statement is so powerful and so rich? Ch- chapter 3 of Ephesians is the answer to that. So if we understand the heart of God and how vast his mission is, how vast his plan is, how, how wonderful his grace is, and how far it extends, we have to understand Ephesians chapter 3. So I want to take you there. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. You're like, I thought we were in Mark. Well, we're not. All right, chapter 3. Look in verse 1. He says, for this reason, for the sake of the gospel... The reason why you were chosen, the reason why you were set apart, the reason why he's given you this amazing grace. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, now pay attention to what he says here, how the mystery was made known, and the mystery is this plan of God, how the plan of God was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. Now, now, here's what Jesus, here's what Paul just says about Jesus. He says, this plan of God's redemptive work for the world, the apostles of old didn't see it. Uh, the people in the Old Testament didn't understand how vast it is, how mysterious it is. That's why he calls it a mystery. He says, now it's been revealed to us. Now we understand what it is. And what is it? Verse 7. 
or verse 6 rather, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So the non-Jews are fellow heirs, members of the same body as the Jews, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, now pay attention to what he says, through the church, God's people, Jews and Gentiles, he says the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he says this, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have uh, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Don't miss the weight of this statement. Paul didn't say that the kingdom of God extending to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, was a plan B. He didn't say, oh, plan A was it was supposed to go to the Jews and they didn't, they didn't really like the message. They rejected Jesus. They, they, they mocked Jesus. They persecuted Jesus. They, they crucified Jesus. It, it went, okay, we, well, we got to come up with a plan B to make this work. It, it, it's not that, Paul's not saying that. Paul's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, the manifold wisdom of God, the eternal purpose of why the world exists, of why Jesus came, he's saying it would be so that the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles would be broken down and believers can come together and be family throughout the entire world. This could happen. This is a magnificent statement. He says, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. What was hidden for the ages is now made known. How is it made known? Believers gathered together. You know what this means, friends? It means that you and I were not mistakes. It means that you and I are not a result of some kind of failed mission. Paul is saying that the gospel to go to the world was and is God's plan from the very beginning. Meaning the church isn't an ethnic people. It's a people from all over the world of many ethnicities who believe in the finished work of Christ. This is why Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He says in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then, he says, you're Abraham's offspring according to the heirs of the promise. And you see, there's no distinction here. He says Jew, Greek, no distinction. Male, female, no distinction. Slave, free, no distinction. Anyone who's in Christ, he says, that's the plan of God. 
that they would come together in this way. And Paul even makes it even more clear in verse 29. He says, if you're in Christ, he says, then you're Abraham's offspring. And this is why this is the reason why that statement is so important. The Jews thought, I'm a part of God's plan because I am connected through my heritage to Abraham. I'm related to, I'm a physical distinction, I'm a physical descendant of Abraham, and that's why I'm special. And Jesus is saying, no, what makes you special if you're in Christ? And he says, if you're in Christ, you're actually a part of Abraham's offspring. You're my people. You're my son. You're my daughter. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Do you see the weight of this, friend? Let me, let me tell you some of the implications of this, what this really means for us. Here in the South, people will often say, well, I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. My grandmother was a Christian, and my, my, my older, my great-grandfather was a pastor, and it was all these, this sort of like this handed-down thing. So like, we act like oftentimes in the South that we inherited Christianity. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying, you can inherit this faith and it becomes your own. No, no. You have to become a believer in Jesus Christ to be a part of Abraham's offspring. So if you are here this morning and you believe, okay, my family being Christian, that's good enough to get me in right standing with God. Friend, you're deceived. You need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to see the, the grace that he extends to you and the mercy that he extends to you, that he's willing to invite you to, to eat at his table. He's asking you to repent of your sins and to trust him and to believe in his finished work. That's what it means to be a part of God's people. That's what it means to be the church. You're a part of a church not because you filled out a card that says that you're a member or you went through a membership interview or you were baptized. You're a part of a church because you became a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you a part of this thing that God says that is according to the eternal purpose that he realized. It's been planned from the beginning. So the church is people who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ and they believe in the finished work of, of what he's done. And so here's what you have, and we make this statement all the time in integrity. The church is God's plan A. It's not plan B. Before the foundation of the world, this is what he wanted. This is what he wanted to see in Greenville. He wanted to see Integrity Church and other churches all around us. That would be an expression of his grace and show that what this means is that we can be a part of this thing and ethnicity is not the problem or what we make is, uh, what our income is is not the problem. We can come together and all those walls can be put down and the ground will be level at the foot of the cross and we can worship Jesus together and we can be a community together. And we see this happen all over the world. That we are a part of something massive. And I want you to see that this morning, church. Because so often when we think of the church, we're like, okay, this is where I come, and I really hope they play my favorite song. I really hope Ben's funny, can open up with a really good joke. Maybe he makes fun of himself, and I can feel really good if that happens. Maybe they have the right programs for my kids, and Maybe, maybe we just need more. Th- maybe we just need the climbing wall, right, for the kids. They'll be so happy if they had the playground, the climbing wall, the youth program. Maybe the youth pastor will 
color his hair green if we go on a trip or play, you know, put marshmallows in his mouth. I don't know, right? And we get like, we get so consumeristic when it comes to the church. And churches will often, they'll take the Bible and lessen it down. Let's do a whole series on, let's do 75 ways that you can date your spouse better or like all these different like programmatic type things for the church. And so we've trained in, in our country, we train people that this is where you come and you soak. This is where you come and consume is that what Jesus says that the church is? No, he says, man, I died for this thing. Like, this is a part of my, my plan for the world to exist so that the church would be an expression of my grace and what I've done and the mercy that I offer and how far it extends. You're a part of something massive. Integrity Church, we're a part of something massive. This is why we're, the church is a bigger organization than China and India combined. Do you understand that, church? We get to be this expression of God's grace here in Greenville, and we're attached to expressions of God's grace all throughout the world. So I cry about <clears throat> just about anything. that, uh, like, if, if there's a military like dad who comes back from another country and he surprises his son, like, and he doesn't know his dad's back, and I just weep. Like, things like that just make me cry. And so one of the things that, like, I cry at, besides, like, nationwide commercials and other things, um, uh, I, I will cry at, like, every time opening ceremony happens of the Olympics and I'm watching it. I just weep. And the reason why I weep is because we're attached to this, this incredible plan that doesn't quite make sense to us. We've seen it more revealed over time, this mystery that we begin to see unfold before our eyes. But as I see the opening ceremony of the Olympics, I see all of these different people singing their songs, wearing their nation's colors, doing their dances, doing their marches, whatever it is that they do to show the expression of where they came from. I just get so excited because I'm like, man, in those countries, there are pockets of people in each of those places that God is saving people and God is redeeming people. And I don't know much about that country or where where it even is, some of these places. But I know I have a brother in that country. I know I have a sister in that country that doesn't speak my language and doesn't look like me, but I'm drawn to it. And it does something in my heart. Why does that do something in my heart? Because I begin to understand God's mission, and God's plan, and God's purpose. I'm a part of something massive. And not only that, friend, I also look at it and have this brokenness that in each of those countries, including my own, there are people that don't know Christ And they're not a part of this family that has so much grace and so much love and so much joy. And so it does something to me as well. It gives me passion and hope to see the gospel in these places. That's what it means to understand the heart of God. And so this morning, Integrity Church, as we look at this story in Mark chapter 7 and this woman coming to Jesus and 
She's hoping to see this compassion from Jesus and Jesus. And she's like, look, I'm willing to even eat the crumbs from the table. She sees that the grace of God doesn't end there at the table, but it extends to the world. And little did she know how magnificent it was and how magnificent it is even today that we would be sitting here today worshiping our Lord, singing songs to him, responding to him in the gospel. We have so much to be thankful for. And so this morning, my question is, do we share in the passion of what Jesus is passionate about? And in order to do that, we have to care about really two things. We have to care about the church. We've got to care about the church two ways, locally and globally. Locally, we should care about the local church. If we believe that this is what Paul says, the eternal purpose of God, that he's planned this from the very beginning. That, that means where he's placed you is where he wants you to live in community with other believers. Helps you see the sovereignty of God differently. That Why did you move to Greenville? Or maybe you grew up here. Friend, let me tell you, he grew you up here and calls you to get this job or maybe landed you in a, in a program at ECU or Pitt Community College, wherever it is. And the reason why he did that is so that you would be an expression of God's grace in a community of believers. And this is, this is why we should, to understand the heart of God, we have to care about the church locally. We should join and be a part of a gospel-centered church. Where, I know of one, Integrity Church. There's a gospel-centered church there, but there's other gospel-centered churches that you can be a part of as well. That you should be in community with other believers, of young and old, of rich and poor, of black and white, that we can be together in community to be a local expression of God's grace to see this manifold wisdom unfold before us. This is why we challenge you. Hey, join our church. We want, you to know, we want to know you. We want to care for you so you can be in community with other believers. But not just that, that you could also be a witness of God's grace with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are with you. That you could share the gospel with your coworkers and with your neighbors and with your friends and with your family. So we have to care, if we want to know the heart of God and know what God's passionate about, we have to care about the church locally, but we also have to care about the church globally. First of all, we should consider going and be willing to go to the unreached places across the world. I tell, I tell every believer, I, my hope is that every single believer would have a chance to go at least on a short-term trip overseas, just to see what it's like, just to see what it feels like, just to see other believers across the world with different languages, different skin color, worshiping Jesus together. And every time I've gone overseas, I've, also, I've gotten connected with different brothers and sisters that I, don't, I can't even fully understand what they're saying, but there's a bond there, there's a brotherhood there that, that draws you in. Why? Because it's a part of God's plan. So every believer should experience that in some way. Maybe you can't go. So would you support it? Would you give? Would you invest in missionaries? Would you educate yourself on unreached people groups? Would you pray for unreached people groups in places that are being persecuted every single day for the sake of the gospel? At Integrity, we provide ways for you to do that. We have information in the lobby. You can find out ways that you can support missionaries or even know more about what missionaries are facing and going through every single day. My hope is that you would do that, that you would educate yourself and you would be a a global-minded Christian 
that you would understand what it means to be a part of this massive thing called the church, not just locally, but throughout the world. And so this morning, if I wanted to motivate you, I could give you a whole bunch of verses on why you should share the gospel. I can give you Matthew 28. I can give you Acts 1.8. I can show you in Corinthians how we're God's ambassadors and we continue in the ministry of reconciliation. But what I wanted to show you this morning is this, God's plan. The church is God's plan A. So what it means to be a part of God's church is mean, that's really God's heart. And you could say it this way. I meet a lot of people who say, man, I, I, I love God. I just don't love the church. And listen, I resonate with that. There's times that the church has hurt people that I love, and there's times that the church, people in the church have hurt me. But it's also part of God's plan, so I, I need to realize that if this is God's plan, this must be something I, I got to fight for. I got to I got to start living my life for to be in communion with other believers and I got to start caring about the world and how it's lost for the gospel and I got to start praying for people to be sent other gospel centered churches to be started I got to be thinking and praying and hoping for God's church to continue to grow and expand and people reach for the gospel and so it's my hope this morning that we're a part of God's plan and this morning my hope is if, if we want to be a church that matures and multiplies believers to leave a gospel legacy. We've got we to gotta care about his church. We've got to care about his church locally. We've got to ch- care about his church globally. So this morning, my challenge is, where is God challenging you this morning to be a part of his plan? That's our hope this morning. God help us.